Welcome to the Rising Giants with your host, Max Thorne and Dominic Klusik, talking with entrepreneurs and investors in the world's most rapidly evolving frontier markets to learn what it takes to have bold ideas and build the business disruptors of tomorrow. In this episode, we talk with Trisha Mani, impact investor at Uber's Capital in Cambodia, where we discuss breaking into impact investing, role of ESG in business and investment today, and how Trisha's perspective from living in Cambodia has guided her to the next steps of her career. We hope you enjoy. Would. Uh, inspired you to be able to come in and and want to you know take on a position in uh, in the country. Yeah, so actually Cambodia was uh, quite funny because I mean I visited once with my family like when I was much younger and we just did Siem Reap and um, and the Angkor Temple, but uh, it was really never part of the plan that I had for um, you know my career and what I wanted to do. Um, so actually, just a little backstory, I guess, was uh, I grew up in India and I, uh, I mean, I studied economics. And then after graduating, I worked with Citibank uh, in Mumbai for two years. And basically, I was working in the private banking and wealth management department. Uh, so that was basically um, working with like ultra high net worth individuals and essentially like the top 1% and managing their portfolio and investments. Um, and while that's a very, I guess, respectable and well thought out after career, it was not something that I could, that I was passionate about or that I could see myself doing. And so I, but it also sort of exposed me to like the nature and scope of wealth, like private wealth that exists in the world. And so for me, it was more of a question of, okay, if this could just be redirected towards like social ventures or socially conscious businesses, that that could be like a win-win for everybody. And so that's how I started sort of researching the field of impact investing and, and sustainable finance. And um, after I quit my job, I moved back home for a few months and um, I was just sort of looking at like impact investing opportunities. And I kind of wanted to get out of India to, to see like, you know, to, to see different markets and, and different cultures and understand what else is out there. And I found this opportunity in Cambodia. And honestly, when I applied it, it was just for an internship. And I sort of just, it, it was, it sort of got lost amongst the many applications that I did. And I almost forgot that I had applied for it. And, um, but then when I sort of, I had all of these interviews and, and I got the job, it just seemed like a no brainer. I was like, okay, why not? Let's, um, Let's see what it's like. And, and honestly, in my head, I was like, okay, if I hate it, I'll just come back in three months. But I guess here we are a year and a half later. And um, it, I mean, it, it basically showed me exactly what I wanted to do. Um, and so I came to Cambodia basically for the job. And the job was exactly sort of, it basically led me into the career that I want to, to build as well. So that's sort of how I accidentally fell into Cambodia and, and, and impact investing. Thank you. Thank you for that, Tricia. Um, I fully agree. There's, I think there's something like 400 trillion in wealth floating about in the world. And yeah, you can, if you can direct that to the right areas, um, it can, you know, it can make it make a huge difference. Like, you know, some of it's just sitting in cash and bonds and exactly. you know, there's just so many opportunities in impact and venture and, well, how do you think it compares, like the social and the impact space uh, in India versus Cambodia? Would you say there's there's more of a focus in in one or the other? Um, so I think the the at least like the sustainable finance field in India is is 
much bigger and I think a lot more developed than Cambodia. So you already have a lot of, um, you know, Sequoia Capital and like a, a lot of big funds that are moving towards impact investing as well. And so it, it is a lot more, I, I feel like it's a bit more advanced than in Cambodia in terms of just one, the uh, amount of funds that are being directed towards socially conscious businesses. And then also in terms of like expertise and, um, you know, also developing all stages of the business. So you also have like accelerators, incubators, um, the, the funds themselves, and then larger private equity funds. So it's moved from say, uh, just venture capital, sort of a little bit into the private equity space as well, which is interesting. Uh, whereas Cambodia, I think, is just at the the start of the journey. So you, it's still more focused on like accelerator incubator and like a little bit of venture capital, I think. So it's it's on the path, but I think it's just a little bit behind maybe. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I fully agree with that. Um, just looking at all the deals being done in India this year, it's it, it's crazy yeah. how, how much is being done. I mean, I think they had the best year they've ever had in, in, in private in private deals done, but, but um, maybe just, maybe just tell the audience a little bit about, about Uberis and how they fit within the, I guess, the overall uh, investment scene in Cambodia. And, and also sure. I believe you've had some, Uberis has had some experience in, in Myanmar as well. So maybe you could give some perspective there. Yeah. Yeah. So um, Uberis is basically an impact investment fund based in Cambodia. It's a triple bottom line fund. So that means that we're focusing on, uh, social and environmental returns in addition to financial returns. And um, so uh, we're, we're basically looking at um, financing and supporting enterprises that are committed to serving the, those at the bottom of the pyramid and the planet. And so from that aspect, we really look at like the primary sectors when we're looking for uh, companies to fund. So we're looking at agriculture, energy, water waste management, and uh like healthcare and education, essentially. Um, those are sort of the, the, the sectors that we focus on, uh, on. And in terms of the companies, we're really in the venture capital pre space. So it's more pre-seed, seed kind of investment. Um, so that's, I mean, that's just a sort of introduction to the fund in itself. But in terms of our investments, um, so we have a few investments in Myanmar right now. Uh, one's in the... Um, smart agriculture sector. So it's essentially a company that provides mechanization services to smallholder farmers in Myanmar. Um, and the second one is an e-commerce platform for women merchants in Myanmar. So that's another um, one of our portfolio companies. Uh, and outside of Myanmar, actually, we're now looking very favorably towards Indonesia, uh, Indonesia and Vietnam, uh, because both of these markets are definitely a sort of booming markets and there's there's huge potential in terms of um investments and and also enterprises uh impact enterprises as well so we're looking at uh, a company in the digital education space in indonesia and another company in healthcare in vietnam that's also quite exciting yeah the indonesian space um for any sort of educational technology, fintech has been booming. It almost feels like every time you look on TechCrunch, there's a new, um, there's a new like funding or some deal has gone through, and it, it's it's crazy how quickly uh, that region is booming at this moment. 
Um, yeah. And maybe to double click a little bit in on what's going on in, in Myanmar and to maybe get a little bit more of your perspective, uh, have you seen any sensitivity around those, uh, around the investments within for the companies that you have there at this current time? Or maybe uh, could, you, could you talk a little bit about the climate that's going on? So, I mean, of course, at least, so, I mean, I guess we have to look at it from two perspectives. One is as investors, and then also from our portfolio company's perspective. Um, from the portfolio company's perspective, given the current situation, we've got a few reports from them in terms of what's going on on the ground. And I guess, by and large, they're not very much affected because um, most of their like clients basically the farm are sort of in the countryside regions so in for them business is continuing more or less as usual uh but on the investment side that's where um it's become a bit difficult because uh you know they're not get there's not a lot of funds that are flowing into Myanmar at this point and even for existing investors uh you know they're hesitant as to whether they would want to follow on with their investments as well so um, I think in terms of the fundraising side for the companies, it's a bit of a tense situation because um, for now, I think they're, they're stable for at least uh, the next couple of months. But um, with the sort of pause in the inflow of capital in the country, that's going to make it a bit difficult for them to sort of sustain operations and uh, their business as well. Okay. Okay. Understood. And 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 I guess touching more on on your experience in in Cambodia, how would you how would you kind of rate the overall maturity of of the market in comparison to say you know some of the other markets that you look at, whether it be Myanmar, Vietnam, Indonesia? Where do you think Cambodia fits? And what what are what are some of the investors? What are some of these misconceptions that maybe investors have of of, of the market and and of the country? So honestly, I think since we started. I mean, since we started operations as well, given that we're based in Cambodia, we've always been looking for, you know, a company to invest in in Cambodia itself. And we've come close to, to a few companies that we would have invested in. But I think what we've also noticed is that um, in terms of expertise, uh, Cambodia is still not maybe at the same level as, say, Vietnam and Indonesia. So I think that's also a question of, um, the the sort of the level of accelerator incubators and w the work that they're doing as well. So, just to give you context, a lot of the uh, companies. I mean, it's important for companies to go through like an incubation acceleration stage before they can come approach investors and be investment ready essentially. So um, that's something that we've noticed is a lot of like Cambodia has no dearth of like social enterprises or entrepreneurs that have amazing ideas. But I think they, they still need uh, some time within the incubation and acceleration uh, space before they can become investment ready. And I think a lot of that ties back to just basic technical expertise and like skill development, which is something that I think a lot more needs to be invested in that space so that you can really leverage the potential that these entrepreneurs have. Um, and so that's, that's something that we've faced as well with companies in Cambodia is that they're maybe not yet ready for investment. Um, but definitely if, and so actually coming from this perspective with Uberis as well, we've 
uh, registered an NGO, a nonprofit in Cambodia, which is called the Beres Planet, whose uh, basic role is essentially this, it's to provide technical assistance to uh, impact-driven enterprises in the region. Because in our experience of evaluating companies, this is like a major skill gap that we notice. And uh, that's something that we want to fulfill because we can definitely see the potential, but we just need sort of to redirect the, the focus towards technical skill development and expertise so that we can make them investment ready and sort and you know redirect capital within Cambodia. Okay, and quickly on that, would you would you say it's quite rare in that somewhere like Cambodia has a lot of these accelerators and incubators that are run by NGOs? I think you know the statistic is there's more NGOs per square kilometer than in Cambodia than any any country in the world. What what do you think? Yeah, what do you think they're not focusing on, and how would like how do you think that model needs to needs to evolve in order to meet the the yeah. I think that that's, that's true. We, I mean, you know, there are a lot of uh, sort of nonprofits and NGOs that work with social enterprises in the region. But I think there's just um, like a miscommunication between the nonprofits and the investors in terms of what the expectation is. And that's something that, um, you know, at Uberis and then also with Obor Capital, that's something that we're trying to um fill is basically fill the, the the knowledge gap and the miscommunication so that we can really communicate to uh the accelerators and the nonprofits what exactly we we want from an investor perspective and then they would be able to train their their cohort of um enterprises in that because right now i think what they're doing is they, they do provide technical assistance and they do provide um sort of uh technical skill development but it's still not aligned towards what we expect as investors and that's something that we're now working on in terms of bridging that knowledge gap so that we can sort of work collaboratively in getting these companies through uh you know through the, the accelerator and then also through to the investors uh, to the investment stage and i think that's the other thing that we see that you know maybe there's there's a lot of these businesses that that could be um preparing themselves to, to take on investment from, you know, large impact investors from around the world, but maybe from whatever reason, there just isn't a, um, a realization that, that those are the types of investors that they could attract. Have you, have you noticed that as well? Like, is there a, is there a disconnect with, with some of the investor relations um, and some of the invest, the investment, um, the, the companies that, that could be formulating a, um, marketing strategy better when it comes to investors yeah i think that's a definitely um a problem as well here is that i don't think a lot of entrepreneurs are familiar with the concept itself of impact investing um or if they are then at sometimes sometimes it's a misconception as well so that's something that we're working on in terms of just making the community and the ecosystem understand what exactly the what exactly impact investing is and what we're looking for and how that you know that you have this sort of massive pool of wealth available for you but you just need to know how to position yourself and how to present yourself uh in order to gain access to these funds and that's something that is extremely important because a lot of enterprises that we've seen here are essentially impact enterprises or socially conscious businesses but either they don't know it 
or they don't know how to present it in a manner that can get in, get investment um, for them. And so that's something that we're also working on is basically to help entrepreneurs understand that if your business has uh, you know any sort of positive social or environmental impact, then you can access funds from impact investors. And it's only a matter of how you present your uh, business. And so if you are able to present your business as a socially conscious business or as a business that has a positive social or environmental return in addition to a financial return, then you have this massive pool of capital that's waiting to be deployed uh, for you. And another misconception though is that is is that for impact investors, we're only looking at the social and environmental return. And that's something that we're also trying to change is that it's important to have a financial return and a, and a strong business model as well, in addition to having a positive social return. And that's, and that's when you have all of these three things, that's when you can sort of unlock all of this pool of capital. Right, and Trisha, something that I remember since we, we go back and have known each other for a little bit of time in Cambodia too, is that during your time, you actually didn't have a motorbike for a while. And it's, and you just, and you were taking a tuk-tuk everywhere, which of course, you know, yeah. supporting the local economy, but could you tell us a little bit about your, your, your journey on getting onto the motorbike and getting that confidence to drive in the traffic of Cambodia? Honestly, yeah. Um, it took me about almost a year, I think, until I got confident with, um, the streets of Cambodia and I've never I'd never ridden a motorbike before uh, but I, I I learned here and then I got got myself a little uh, scooter a little moped <laughs> and um, honestly my first week of getting it I had like two accidents and I was like okay maybe this was a bad decision um, but no I think since then Tatwood um, it's been great honestly like Cambodia is like a perfect place to have your own little moto because the sort of freedom and independence it gives you is amazing and you can like you know there's not a lot of traffic i mean when i say there's not a lot of traffic i'm coming from like mumbai so um right right that's, <laughs> comparable that's, in a different sense <laughs> yeah that context is important um but for me phnom penh is like a tiny little town and so it's it's um it's really an enjoyable experience riding around in my little moped um and yeah, and it's been great. I'm really sad to have to sell it now. <laughs> yeah, that is a, a when you are driving around, you feel like it's a you feel like you're always on edge, but in a good way. It's like if if there's ever yeah. any traffic, you know, you can weave around it. You can go up onto the sidewalks, and you yeah, know, traffic traffic lights are um, of a uh, little importance <laughs> in, in some yeah. cases too. <laughs> They're more suggestions than um, restrictions, actually. <laughs> But yeah. yeah, also, I guess you become a bit more confident after you like after you start driving a little, and then sometimes it's it's scary, and you're just like, okay, no, you have to chill. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. But, yeah, yeah, you do you do gain that confidence after being like, okay, well now I need to turn take this right in front of three lines of cars, so I'm gonna just yeah. go for it instead of you know blocking up the whole road. Um, yeah, if anything. It, getting a motorbike teaches you confidence. Yeah, and to go uh, to go back a little bit into Uberis, mm -hmm. when when you joined, some of your functions as an investment analyst, you 
when doing deal sourcing and due diligence, but something that was really interesting um, that, that you were a part of was creating the ESG framework for the fund, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And it'd be great to have your perspective on maybe some of the some of that process and then the importance of an ESG framework in in a fund like Uberis or in, in just a business in general. Right. Yeah. Um, so when I came in, uh, honestly, like I had no um, sort of background in, in impact analysis, evaluation, or even what ESG is. Um, and so for me, it was definitely a challenge, but it was also some, it was right up the alley of what I, what I'm interested in. So uh, I've always been someone who's interested in the development space and in sort of impact evaluation and understanding how to essentially quantify it. And so for me, it was a very sort of inspiring and exciting journey, even though like I had no sort of introduction to it before. Um, but I, what was also interesting is as I, I realized that as I was researching it, um, the global community was also researching it as well. So um, in general, impact evaluation is a very nascent concept. And um, that's something that I've learned as well is that um, just in general, the concept of quantifying impact is extremely subjective, right? Because you you can't really put a number to to something as subjective as social impact or environmental impact. And so um, what I found when I was researching it is that there, there's a whole dialogue and a conversation about different methods of um, understanding impact, both conceptually and then even in terms of a fund, in terms of putting it down, like breaking it down into actual numbers. And in some cases also breaking it down into monetary terms. So what is what is the social impact of an in initiative in terms of like, in terms of USD? So that was something that was interesting um, to, to explore for the fund. Um, what, we, what I did was uh, basically use a lot, a combination of different um, universally accepted frameworks. Uh, but what you also realized is that context is very important. So while, um, you know, the UN and CDC and a lot of the GIN and a lot of organizations have their own methodologies of quantifying impact and, uh, you know, if understanding, uh, creating an impact evaluation framework, um, it's important to also understand the context that you're in. So uh, for a lot of cases, things that might uh, be th things that might work with uh, in say developed countries would be completely different in a developing country. So that's something that I had to also adapt for the when I was doing the ESG policy for the fund. Um, and so that was an interesting experience as well. Um, in terms of Sorry, I forgot the other question. Oh, no, that's, no that, that's fine. And it's interesting that you bring up the point with looking into more developed markets. And I think that was something that would be great to talk about is in, around investor relations and in terms of how you go about explaining the idea of impact and ESG to these investors, whether they're, if there's a much of a difference between the investors that you speak to in the Asian region or in Europe or US or wherever, um, wherever you may be having that contact with an investor. Uh, it, could be it would be interesting to maybe see if there's any difference in those conversations or understandings in general. 
Yeah, so I mean, I have definitely found differences in terms of uh, investor understanding of impact, but not so much geographically, but more in terms of the method. Uh, and I think that's because conceptually, when you try to understand how do you quantify impact, there are different ways to doing it. So in some cases, it's some investors are more subjective. So they would rather see, um, say, like a concept like the UN SDGs or some that as as a metric to measure impact so you would say okay this is alleviated poverty or it's reduced inequality or um it's improved education so those are more um theoretical concepts but not really quantifiable in any manner and so that's one type of investor which would just sort of look at conceptually what have you done uh with your investment uh, another type of investor also may want sort of more subject uh, objective numbers sorry and by that i mean some investors they they want to know okay if i invest one dollar in your fund how what is the equivalent social impact in dollar terms and so that's a whole different method of evaluation where you basically break down the social impact and you represent it in the form of uh, in monetary terms so what you say is that, okay, $1 invested gives me $3 worth of social impact. And that's something that sometimes um, is what investors look for as well, where they really want to know, okay, what is the monetary value of the impact that I've had? Um, and that's in monetary terms. And I think the third type would be in, in just in terms of numbers. So if I've invested in one company, how many people have I helped? or how much uh, by how much has their income increased or you know how many children have i sent to school or something like that so it's really more i guess from the investor perspective it's more how they conceptualize the concept of impact and and then what their preference is and i think what we've noticed um, in most cases is that most investors they really just want to uh, either know conceptually what the SDGs, like which of the SDGs are they furthering with their investments, and then also in terms of just the number, the number of people that they would help with their investments. Okay, okay, understood. And, and building on building on from that, um, if you if you were to be given, let's say, you know, a million a million dollars tomorrow to to invest in a impact or a well, like as you say a triple bottom line company um mm -hmm. or or um strategy where, where would you where would you like where would you put that money in in cambodia is there any particular like startups or sectors that have really caught your attention that um that you'd, you'd put the money towards i think so for me i've always been um sort of passionate in terms of like about gender and what I really noticed in Cambodia is that the um, sort of uh, the the focus on on women-led enterprises has has really surprised me um, because it's not something that I've seen a lot in in other countries and in India as well. And so I think within Cambodia there are a lot of organizations that focus on women entrepreneurs, specifically I guess there's She Investments, there's also the Asia Foundation. Some of their programs have. Um, are focused on women entrepreneurs and i think that's definitely a space that i would want to invest in uh just because there are like the sheer number of enterprises and entrepreneurs that uh go through these programs and have really really great ideas i think um redirecting uh, or investing some of the capital in basically women-led 
businesses would be something that I would do with the one million dollars. Okay. Yeah. No. I just it, it, just a hypothetical. Um, yeah. The, the the other interesting thing I w- want to ask is how does how do you think the impact space relates to say like investing in a particular sector like for instance you know making an investment of um, you know a few million in the agricultural sector or mm-hmm. versus like investing in a tech like a women run tech startup versus investing in a you know a, a huge farming operation that's mostly employing um, mostly employing women or that kind of thing how how does that kind of how does that differ and and how you, how do you approach the types of sectors that you're looking at and if, if they if they have high employment or um or they just focused on like a tech solution do, do, does impact naturally kind of move away uh from tech in order to find the kind of more offline like heavy human human capital businesses or am, am i misunderstanding that no so not necessarily i think it really just depends on what kind of investments you do or your investment mandate so, for example, um, there are some impact funds that focus specifically on tech, uh, tech companies. So then you, with that focus, you really look at, okay, within leveraging technology in like healthcare and education and all of those. And it doesn't mean that the potential or the quantifiable impact is any less. It's just that it's more focused on tech. Uh, whereas when you, you have some funds which focus on really primary sectors, so it's agriculture, energy, and it's um, more, yeah, it's, it's I guess, more de- uh, developed um, industries. And so in that case, the impact would be, I mean, the, the, the way that you would quantify the impact is different and also the, um, you know, the amount of impact is different. But I don't think there's a sort of, I don't think there really, there's any major difference between the two. It just depends on what sort of mandate you have as an investment fund or as an investor. and you know, in what, at what scale and at what level and who you want to impact. So uh, maybe like, I mean, in both situations, your beneficiaries would be, could be the same or could be different, but it really depends on what sort of target beneficiaries you plan, I mean, you would like to, to help. And then you look at sectors that, that, do, that work within the same space. And also in some situations, you, you know, both of these sectors merge. So you also have a large number of um, companies, impact enterprises that are basically leveraging technology in agriculture and in energy. So you have companies that are using, say, drones, drone technology for like pesticide spraying. Or one of the companies that we're investing in is uh, basically an, an app that uh, connects. It's kind of like an Uber, but for tractors. Uh, for farmers in Myanmar. So there's a lot of um, sort of collision between the two sectors. It's not any more completely different sectors as well. Okay, understood. And, and yeah, building on from that, have you, are there any particular um, sectors and areas that you actually think there's too much focus uh, in Cambodia, whether that be, I don't know, something like fintech, for instance, like what, what sectors do you wish there was more, had, had more attention and um, you, you hope to see more activity in moving forward? Within Cambodia and also, I guess, in, in general in Southeast Asia, I mean, personally, I'm someone who I really want to see focus towards, um, you know, sectors that, that serve the bottom of the pyramid. So I would still focus more on, like, agriculture, energy, water, waste management, healthcare, education. Because... Um, I also, I mean, because you also have to understand that 
the regions that we're looking at are emerging economies in Southeast Asia. So they're still primarily agricultural. They're still primarily um, still lacking in a lot of basic essential services. And um, you know, with if, if you if we can fill this gap through private investment, I think that that's definitely something that could supplement, like you know, government funding within these uh, regions as well. And What's interesting is that's what you see happening in Cambodia as well with, with uh, Khmer Enterprise. It's sort of a, um, uh, an offshoot of the, the government where they basically have allocated some funds to fund uh, social enterprises in Cambodia. And so that's interesting because they're sort of leveraging the private sector to redirect finances towards companies that basically provide um, essential services to, to people. So yeah, that's I guess that's the sector that I would focus on. No, I completely understand with that too. And I, in at Savea, we actually have a, a bit of a partnership with Khmer Enterprise and seeing how we can help support them in those sort of um, projects and aspects as well in terms of mentorship or anything along those lines. Um, so Trisha, quick question. Uh, how do you feel about putting pineapple on a pizza? Oh, I hate it. <laughs> Two kinds of people, and I think if you if you put pineapple on pizza, you're you're the the other kind that I hate. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, and so, in terms of your next steps in your career, you're about to head off um, and start your 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 graduate school in yeah. Geneva. And in terms of the long, in the terms of your your view and your perspective maybe the direction you want to head in, what's kind of an idea of what positions you would like to, to go forward and, and try and achieve, or what are some, some things that really interest you? So I think right now, I mean, at least in terms of my career, I've, so I've had some experience in the field of uh, private finance, private and corporate finance with Citi, and Uberis in Cambodia has sort of given me an introduction to working with uh, a first-time fund in the impact investing space. Um, I'm now going to grad school and I'm really interested in, in understanding what else is out there in the field of sustainable finance and, and impact investing as well. Um, and I think post that, where, what I think what the next step would be would either be working with a larger impact investment fund. So still in the private sector, but maybe a larger fund um, still focused on, on emerging markets and stuff, but just a larger fund because that gives you a lot more um, scope of work and opportunities. And um, alternatively, I'm also interested in looking at some of the international organizations. Uh, so you have like the Asian Development Bank or the IFC uh, that basically have, um, you know, that work on a larger scale as well, but more with um, with governments and with uh, the private sector. So it's, it's a sort of partnership um, to see, yeah, basically working with the international organizations within the same space to see uh, you know, what the opportunities are there as well. So yeah, I think I would either look at a larger private fund or, or join one of the international organizations within the same space. Okay, and full disclosure, I'm a no pineapple on the pizza kind of guy too. Just, just, to, just, to, just to make That's that, right. yeah, just, just to make that known. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure with Max, but uh, just, to, just wanted to lay that out there. Uh -huh. So 
And so being in being Cambodia during your time and having to leave, actually, it, it feels like it's it's in a month now, if, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the things that you're going to miss most from from the country? Have there been any specific experiences that you really felt that have attracted you to want to stay longer um, in terms of maybe places you've seen or experiences you've had? Yeah, honestly, I think what I what I'm really going to to miss is like, and hopefully not miss, but continue is the person that I've become while I've been in Cambodia because that's something that's definitely changed, and moving to Cambodia has definitely helped develop that. So I'm hoping that that will stay with me in Geneva and post that. But I think within Cambodia, so many experiences. It it allows you to to meet people from all over the world. You're I, I remember I used to joke about it when I first came here, but um, when I first got here, I had this mission to just say yes to everything, to, to all kinds of experiences. And that helped me do take salsa classes and go uh, play badminton and travel all around with like people that I've never met. Um, and, you know, just basically experience the city and the culture as it as it is. And I think that that's something that I will really miss. And in terms of yeah, just the lifestyle, the, the expat life here is also great, but also interacting with the locals, understanding the, their, their culture as well. Um, and yeah, I think it's, it's more of like the person that I am and the, the lifestyle that I'll definitely miss. Yeah, I really like the idea of always saying yes when you get to a new place. Because yeah. you never know really what you're going to end up getting into. And when you don't understand maybe some of yeah. the, uh, maybe anything really into a, a new country, it, it just opens up your perspective and really gets you involved in things that you never thought you'd, you'd do, such as the salsa classes or, yeah. or things that you never knew that you'd be interested in until you try it. And yeah, you also realize that you're actually quite good at things that you did, hadn't ever thought <laughs> of doing. Yeah. So it's been, it's, I think that's definitely been a really eye-opening experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, I'm gonna hopefully carry it forward with the the new places I go to as well. Mm-hmm. And with with that, when you came to Cambodia, maybe um, were there any sort of habits or um, things that you developed during your time to you know help you stay productive, or, or do you have any um, you know secret unlocks and that you would like to do on a day to day that would help with? maybe keeping you focused um, or maybe just kind of inspiring you to grow in your career while you were in Cambodia? I think since I came here, I became a lot more conscious of um, sort of a work-life balance, I think, and also taking some time for like uh, personal growth. So I, I sort of made it a point to read every day, to spend some time doing something I enjoy, to to being more open to doing things outside of work because I think before that I mean also with with the Indian culture and in general I guess Asian culture is, is very like work oriented and work focused and stuff and especially with city and like the corporate finance field so I think coming here I took a lot more time to to explore activities and passions that I had outside of work even though work in itself was definitely something that I loved doing and enjoyed a lot mm-hmm. um it's sometimes easy to, to get lost in that when you really enjoy what you're doing, but I sort of tried to make it a point to do other activities. And so that's something that definitely helps me just in terms of 
like reading every day listening like you know watching documentaries podcasts movies basically being also like going out and experiencing the city with like art galleries and things that i may not have before um sort of exposed myself to and i may not have known enough about just being more open to to going out and and being more exploratory that's something that definitely i think helped me also within my workspace then stay more focused and be more productive um as well and also apply the things that i've seen and learned and read and watched in in my work as well right and can completely relate to that too having previously worked in a in a corporate finance role and yeah. you kind of get into the monotonous cycle of of life in a not to be in a you know to put that in a depressing way but um it, it you kind of just get into a routine where you you just work you come back home you know you might have some dinner and then you just kind of go to sleep and um yeah. you know taking taking a step back and looking at the bigger perspective of maybe stepping away from that sort of position and inserting yourself into uh you know a situation like like Cambodia at a you know yeah. where it's everything's completely new you just you're just more of a sponge and in that yeah. case you just you take on it's almost like a information overload in a good way though that you yeah. you realize that you have the opportunity to to really explore things that you didn't know that you liked before um, yeah exactly and yeah. that was especially true for me with with like art and music and stuff and these things i i didn't really explore a lot of before um you know with my job but um but that's definitely something that i really have become much more appreciative of since i've come here and so yeah mm-hmm. that's um so yeah and so it'd be interesting to hear you mentioned reading a little bit more and podcasts what are some of the most important what or i guess what is the most important book that that you've read or maybe is there something that you're you've read recently that has really inspired you in one way or another um something that i've read yeah so i mean recently i i read a book that changed my life <laughs> not to sound dramatic but um just a little bit it, <laughs> yeah but honestly i mean i 100% would recommend you and everybody else to read it it will definitely change your life um it's called man's search for meaning and it's by victor frankl and it's basically um sort of kind of a philosophy book but also uh, a biography of um and basically what he talks about is is how all of us are sort of searching for meaning in life and how i mean how do you find that and what what drives each of us as human beings and um sort of how do you find what drives you and how do you redirect your life towards that meaning and um i mean his it he starts with I mean so he's basically a holocaust survivor so he starts with um his experiences in the holocaust but it's not one of those usual depressing books about the holocaust it's more inspirational in terms of what really drove him to find meaning in his life and then he talks about um logotherapy which is his form of um which is his philosophy basically that all of us as human beings are sort of driven by driven towards finding a purpose in life and um you know when you when you identify that and when you are able to to work towards it then your life becomes a lot more fulfilling and i think that's something that definitely changed my life as well where i where i was able to sort of um understand what really drives me as a person and then build my my life around that 
It's definitely a very fascinating book and something that I'll put next on my reading list. Uh, our, our, our classic closing question that we like to ask everybody is, what is the most important advice that you've ever been given? Um, I think I would say, so my mom actually always said that with freedom comes responsibility. And I think that that's something, I mean, it's simple, but it's something that sort of really stuck with me in, in every aspect of my life. And um, I think it's important because, you know, as we, I mean, as we grow up, but also in like roles that we take with jobs, with in your career, you're always striving for a lot more freedom, but you have to understand that it's, there's a lot of responsibility that comes with it. And just being conscious of that can, it can enable you to, to do things in a, in a much better way and um, sort of help you really uh, achieve what you want to achieve. So I think that that's something that sort of stuck with me throughout. So even, you know, with moving to Cambodia, with like my career, with my job as well in, in any task, um, when you know that you have the freedom to do something, you also have a responsibility to make sure that it's done well or, that, or to make sure that, that you give your best. And that's something that um, I really believe in as well. With freedom comes responsibility. I, I absolutely love that. And holding yourself yeah. accountable for any sort of any, anything that you do in life, whether it be work related or, or even with yourself. That's, that's really yeah. awesome. Um, yeah. well, Tr well, Trisha, I just want to say that it has been awesome speaking with you today and uh, really have learned a lot about the impact investment space and your experiences and, have had a lot of um, very interesting, you know, interpersonal ideas as well. And yeah, just wanted, thank you so much. yeah, I want to really uh, thank you for coming on to the show. Um, thank yeah. you so much for having me. It's been, it's been a pleasure talking to you and Max and um, I wish you the best for your podcast. <laughs> You're doing great things. <laughs> <laughs>